0: Good morning, everybody. My name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here for anybody who's maybe brand new. I want to welcome everybody online joining us. Uh, anybody been here for longer than five years? All right, let's see. I'm going to try and pick somebody who's going to preach. Uh, no, i <laughs> So a little over 10 years ago, uh, I had the distinct privilege of going to Montana for three days and spending those three days with Eugene and Jan Peterson. Eugene Peterson, for some of you who maybe don't know, he's the one who wrote the message paraphrase of the Bible. And he was a pastor for over 30 years. He was a seminary professor as well as an author of over 35 books. I had the privilege of kind of being, having him mentor me from afar and then in person. And so when I went, I went with a good friend, actually Glenn and one of our overseers here. And he, Glenn and I, we would, we basically had dinner with them or lunch or whatever. And then we'd kind of linger for conversation. And every time Every time Eugene spoke, it felt like, I need, can I record this? this it's awkward. Can I set up a video camera, you know, and write it down? And, and, and we didn't do that. It we were just lingering, but then I would write him down later. And, but it was like, every time Eugene spoke, I wanted to just like lean in and like, okay, what is he saying? And what's he, what's he saying but not saying? And there was so much gold in everything that he shared. And this is a similar type of setting that we have to when Jesus is preaching and communicating the Sermon on the Mount. And we started our series going through the Sermon on the Mount starting last Sunday, and we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next several months. And it starts in Matthew chapter 5 and starting in verse 1. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, so we have lots and lots of people, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So a couple of things here, this is more than just a basic description. There's a few things that that, that have deeper meaning. The first one is, is that Jesus sat down. When a rabbi sat down to teach, it meant, get comfortable, he's going to be here a little while. And the reason that Jesus sat down, rather than like, oh, just share this or share this, is because the kingdom of God, the number one thing that Jesus talked about and what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, we are calling it his kingdom manifesto, was counterintuitive and countercultural. As a result, it required more explanation because it wasn't something you're like, oh yeah, I get it. Oh yeah, I understand that. Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly how it works. Jesus had to kind of unpack something that didn't make sense. The other thing that uh, uh, would have been Seen or heard by the original readers of the book of Matthew. Matthew was written for a Jewish audience, and a Jewish audience would have had in their imagination about a rabbi going to, or a spiritual leader going up a mountainside, would have sparked uh, the imagination or the remembrance of Moses going up the mountain uh, on, the, on the mountain of Mount, or mount Sinai on the mountainside. But the difference between Jesus and Jesus actually in the book of Matthew is presented as the new or the better Moses, is that Jesus, that Moses went up on the mountainside to get revelation from God, but Jesus goes up on the mountainside to give revelation from God. And he starts by going into the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount starts with what we might know as the Beatitudes. There are eight Beatitudes. And so we'll be taking a beatitude each week, starting today with the first one, which is out of Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before we get into the specifics of this particular beatitude, I want to start with a word and unpack the word that is at the beginning of every one of the eight beatitudes, and that's the word blessed. Now, blessed for us is, is kind of a I don't know, in general, as I've asked it from people, it's kind of a a spiritual word, you know, like blessings to you, child, you know, like a a nice word, a a kind word, but not necessarily like a, a profound word. The word blessed in the Greek is makarios, and it actually is a tough word to translate directly into English. Other translators have said that it may be best translated as fortunate or happy, And happy is good, except for that in the way that that word gets imagined in our culture or lived out in our culture in our day and age, has a lot to do with circumstances. Circumstances, when circumstances are good, I'm happy. When they're not so good, I'm not so happy. But Jesus here is talking about a deep happiness that is not tied to your circumstances, but something deep within us. Maybe another way of describing or translating this word blessed uh, I think of my, 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 my Australian friend, Seth Peters. Uh, some of you might know him here, Seth and Katie. And Seth, uh, well, say, hey, good on you, mate, right? You know, like, good on you, mate. Uh, Those are the poor in spirit. Or congratulations. Or I like how Eugene Peterson said about it. He said, actually, I think lucky is a great word. Not like lucky, like won the lottery lucky. Maybe a little bit more like Napoleon Dynamite. Lucky. <laughs> but maybe even deeper to say like, you know the person that somehow had like a life and death experience or, or something significant happened in their lives and they're like, I'm just so lucky to be alive. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if life is good or bad. It doesn't matter if their bank account is full or not. It doesn't matter what's going on. I just, I'm just so lucky. That's, that's what this is. Lucky are the poor in spirit. So, if we come around that idea, who, does, who do you say is lucky? Who, who does our culture say is lucky? The popular, the beautiful, the educated, the successful, the cool, the wealthy, the fashionable, the fit? Which, which then says who's the unlucky? Who's unlucky in our culture? The underachiever? The uncool, the uneducated, the smelly, the weak. But Jesus is saying, lucky are those who the world says is unlucky. Those who the world says are unlucky, Jesus is saying, oh, you're lucky. It's like Psalm chapter 10, verse 14. Out of the message, he says, I dare to believe that the luckless will get lucky someday in you. See, Jesus is announcing that the unlikely are getting in on God's good plan, which is good news. If you've, anybody ever in here felt disqualified or unworthy in some way? Ah, I blew it. Ah, my life is not like I hoped. It's, it's got some mess. It's got some edges. It's not, ah, I blew it. I'm, I, I. Jesus is saying and announcing to you, you're messy, ordinary, unspectacular life is the perfect landing pad for Jesus and the kingdom of God. Which, in the first century, flew in the face of Jewish understanding. The Jewish understanding was the more powerful you were, the more wealthy you were, the more educated you were, the more respected you were, the more blessed by God you were. Even in the first century, the more kids you had, the more blessed by God you were. Jesus throws that upside down. No, no, no. Those who are grief-stricken, the saddest. Those who are persecuted. Those who are meek. They're the most lucky. Now, if that was the first century understanding, has anything changed today? Who do we say is blessed by God? Wow, look... Successful business. Look at the accolades and the achievements and the house and the car and the whatever. It's kind of ironic because here we live in the most successful, the most prosperous nation, not just in the world at this time, but in history. And yet, statistics show that there's less happiness, more loneliness and depression, disconnected sense of well-being than ever. See, the Beatitudes in that day and in our day are countercultural to our culture's way of success and blessing, which means that the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to radical devotion to the way of Jesus. And an invitation away from the ways of the world. How it gathers power or finds satisfaction or engages purpose. The last shall be first. The servants will be the greatest. Those who are persecuted are the luckiest. You love instead of destroy your enemies. The children are the ones who get the kingdom of God. See, Jesus' sermon, and I think this is important for us to recognize as we step into this today and in the future weeks, Jesus' sermon is to be seen as a way to live as the people of God, not the way to become the people of God. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works and fruit that no one can do unless he already is a Christian and in a state of of grace. In other words, this is the type of life God's reign will produce in each one of us. So that's, so that's what it means to be lucky. So what is poor in spirit? Is God wanting us to live in poverty? Is that what it means? It, poverty is not a blessing. It is not God's desire Not asking and saying, I want you to live in poverty, but oftentimes we might say, okay, well, that's true. Then we over-spiritualize it and think, well, then it must mean that he just wants us to be spiritually poor, therefore see our need for him. Now that is true, but Jesus doesn't want us just to kind of, "Oh, that's good, I'll do that, and then dismiss it because he actually is asking for it to go much deeper than that. There's two words in the Greek for poor, And Jesus uses one of them. The first one is poor, like lower class, like like lacking things that the majority of the rest of culture or society has. And the second one is destitute. And that is the word that Jesus uses. Destitute in spirit. Having nothing. Which means that you're dependent upon another for survival. Like, without someone else's help, you will die. That's what Jesus is saying. I want you to be destitute in spirit. And it's more than just spiritually, I recognize my need for Jesus. It's actually a condition of the heart, which is what Jesus is really focusing on going for in the Sermon on the Mount. So to understand what is maybe being said here in this beatitude, where we write it just a little bit, lucky are those who have nothing to offer, for theirs is the abundant life of God. Because why? Because if you're destitute, you're reliant on somebody else, you have nothing to offer in return. I just need help. I am powerless, might be another word that we would use. Blessed are the powerless. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Lucky are those who have nothing to offer, for theirs is the abundant life of God. Now, here's my problem. Me and I would guess the vast majority of us in here have more than we need. And so as an individual and as a pastor, I, I, I've been thinking about it this week and I was like, well, this is a tough one. This is a t- it's tough to teach people who have plenty to be truly desperate and live as if they have nothing to offer. Because also we've been shaped by the Beatitudes of our day that sound like blessed are the well-off, independent, and those who are able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps for theirs is the best life. I wonder if it sounds something like that to us today. If that's the water in which we swim and that is what's been shaping our idea of what blessing and how we make it in life. In the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, uh, in the first several chapters, there's seven different letters that are written by John the Revelator to seven different places. And one of them is to Laodicea, uh, a early first century city. And the church at Laodicea, he writes this in verse 17 of chapter 3. You say, saying to that church, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You think, I've got something. And he's saying, "Ah, actually, you don't. See, self-reliance is not a kingdom value. It might be an American value, but it is not a kingdom value. See, the opposite of poor in spirit, is not rich in spirit, it's proud in spirit, which means I can do this. Jesus, in this one sentence, is calling for the death of self-sufficiency, which means that we've got to freely admit our need, like, like Psalm chapter 40, verse 17, where it says, but as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Why? Because if without you, I'm going to die. See, those who know that they are in need and powerless gladly accept God's rule. His rule and His reign, the kingdom of God. I think we have a lot to learn from AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. If you have ever talked to somebody who's gone through the 12 step program, the first step is admitting or confessing powerlessness. And as that happens and begins the process, it is a step out of illusion into reality. Out of the I can do this to I can't, I'm powerless against alcohol by myself. But I know that there can be freedom on the other side. So what if there's this way that we can embrace who we are in being poor in spirit and freedom is on the other side? I want to just highlight a few ways that this looks in our lives. In order for us to experience freedom, the first one is that the poor in spirit have nothing to protect. Nothing to protect. You ever remember maybe your mom uh, did this, or maybe in your own house you've done this, where somebody's coming over and you didn't have enough time to clean the house. And so uh, the cleaning strategy is not to put everything back where it belongs. It's to find the one room and throw everything in there. And so it's like, shove it in there, shove this in there. And then you've got piles of dirty clothes and we've got laundry that's unfolded and we've got uh, uh, dishes and we've got, I mean, who knows what's going on in there, you know? I mean, it is, it is the room. And then it's like, hey kids, don't let anybody in there. Like don't, if if there's nothing else that happens today, don't let them in there. Don't let them see that room. That room is off limits. With your life, don't let them see that. Might that be a metaphor for those who are not poor in spirit? Might it be a metaphor for the ways that we like to protect our reputation and not let anybody see a mess or weakness or our humanity? That we, if we're poor in spirit, we're not protecting an idealized version of ourselves? That we're comfortable with who we are? Which means that we can hear criticism and not be crushed by it. Because we know we don't have it all together. Because we know we're a work in progress. Because we know that we're in need. Which means that vulnerability is not off limits for the poor in spirit. Because the poor in spirit embrace their limits. I can't do that. I'm not very good at that. Or I, can't, I don't have the ability for that. Vulnerability is not off-limits because the poor in spirit embrace limits. The poor in spirit have nothing to protect. Number two, the poor in spirit have nothing to possess. Not just talking about material possessions, though that applies. Whether it's a material possession or a reputation or, or a title. See, the goal in being poor in spirit is not that we don't own anything. It's that nothing owns us. Because you can have the smallest amount of things and it can own you. Or you can have an excess of things and none of it can own you. It's why Jesus talks so consistently about possessions, wealth, as he does in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Is he he saying it's because Wealth in and of itself is wrong? No. Scripture says the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. He's just saying the attitude that can go along with being rich is what keeps us from the kingdom of heaven, which is why as followers of Jesus, generosity is a vital practice generosity is a vital practice, not just once, but consistently. And that's why tithing, the consistent practice of generosity and giving of our finances, is a formational practice and a grip-loosening practice for followers of Jesus. Because we say, you know what, I want my hands to be loose around what I have, which is going to mean that my heart is going to be loose around what is given to me as a gift. The poor in spirit have nothing to protect, nothing to possess, and finally, the poor in spirit have nothing to prove. Nothing to prove. I'm not saying that approval is a bad thing. Approval actually is a wonderful thing. But if we find our value and our significance in other people's approval, it's out of line. It's important, actually, I believe, that we experience approval and encouragement. But if we're living for it, it warps something in us. Jesus, as he's beginning his ministry, goes into the Jordan River. And in the Jordan River is baptized by John the Baptizer. And and as he comes up out of the waters of baptism and says that the heavens opened and God, Jesus' father, leans over the balcony of heaven and says, that's my boy. I love him. Oh, I'm so proud of him. Approved by his father. Which, if I can just make an aside, parents, one of the things that you can do so that only you can give. There's something about the approval of a mom or a dad. And all you got to say is what Jesus heard from his father. That's my boy. That's my girl. Oh, I love him. I'm so proud of him. Say it to them. It will impact deeply. But then it says, after that happened, Jesus experiences the approval of Father. He comes up out of, the ba- out of the waters of baptism in the Jordan, and then he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, the enemy, Satan, comes to him to tempt him. And his temptations turn these bro- the rocks into bread. What are these three temptations about? And what do they ultimately say? And what is he asking Jesus to do? Prove yourself. You were just approved, now you need to prove yourself. Does wow. yeah. the temptation ever come along to each one of us in the same way? Ah, oh God, I thank you that you love me with an unending love. And We walk out into the world and we're like, i got to prove myself. I've got to prove that I'm enough. And God's like, you are enough. I just told you that. It isn't because of something you did. It's just because of, you're my son, you're my daughter. I just love you. Social media doesn't help. Put something up and then, you know, get quite as many likes or friend requests or follows or whatever, clicks and, I don't know. And you're like, duh, I guess I'm not. Or, or, or the, the comment section of Facebook, you know, also known as hell. Um, <laughs> what's happening in that valley of contempt? I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to prove it, and I'm going to prove I'm right. (laughs) Can we get a little closer to home? This last week, my wife, Jossie, and I had a little argument. Heated discussion, let's call it that. And here I am, thinking through and praying through and being poor in spirit. God, I want nothing to prove. Just want to get up on the platform and preach, nothing to prove, nothing to protect, just poor in spirit, nothing to offer, just God's got everything to offer, and I just want to be a vessel, and there's Jossie and I, I'm right, and I'm trying to make sure that she knows that I'm right, and I'm like, nothing to protect, nothing to possess, and nothing to prove. In 1725, John Newton was born in England. John Newton grew up not a follower of Jesus. He joined the Royal Navy. After his service in the Royal Navy, he was used to being on ships, and he started a new career, and his career was in the slave trade, so he found himself on ships a lot, going back and forth from Africa to the UK. And in 1748, he found himself in a Horrible storm and the ship had actually found uh, had a hole in it and some different things going on and he thought it was over. My life is over, I'm about to die. And in his desperation he calls out to God, It's God save me, I need you, have mercy on me. That was seventeen forty eight. The ship miraculously doesn't sink. His life is saved. And he begins a journey. He begins a journey that ultimately leads him to quitting the slave trade years later and becoming an ordained priest in the Church of England. And in 1772, not just because of that one moment, but because of his understanding of what God had done in his life as a result throughout the years, he wrote one of the most famous hymns of all time, Amazing Grace. My guess is that everybody in this room has either heard it in some form or another. Maybe you've been in church and you feel like I've, hung, I've sung that hundreds of times or maybe you've never been in church and you're just familiar with it because it's kind of just so popular that the hymn Amazing Grace is just well known. Either way, if we pay attention to the lines, it says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me you ever thought about that word wretch? I mean, that is a strong word. I wonder, you know, you read that and you're like, man, did John Newton have a self-esteem problem? No, he didn't. He had a poor in spirit awareness. He was aware of his poverty of spirit. He had nothing to offer. And that nothing could be offered for amazing grace. So he intentionally chose this word wretch as a way of communicating I've got nothing to offer, and it was a gift, and that's how I live. Maybe some of you are in that place today. You say, you know what? I've been living in a place of self sufficiency. And you sense something deep inside that is inviting you to come to a place where you say, Jesus, I need you. And really, it's a, it's, a, it's a statement of saying, I've got nothing to offer, but it's also, I need you because without you, I am nothing. Without you, I have nothing. And so maybe you sense this invitation not from me, but actually from God. It says, will you surrender your life? And if that's you here today, cross the line of faith, maybe for the first time in your life, for the first time in a long time, and you would say, Jesus, I need you. If that's you, would you just even say that under your breath? Just, Jesus, I need you. A statement of desperation. And just like John Newton, it's not the only thing he ever said to God, but it was a statement that initiated and began a journey of saying and living out the reality that I am in, have nothing to offer. I am in desperate need. And it is only because of Jesus and his grace that I have anything. For all of us in here, I want us to take a step this next week as a way of living into the reality of being poor in spirit. I want to ask everybody to memorize the Beatitudes. So this week, it's just one. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next week, we'll add to that and so on. And the reason I want us to memorize it is so that we meditate on it, so that we Internalize these beatitudes so that we integrate them into our lives. <laughs> because the reality is, is we need to not just kind of know about the Sermon on the Mount. We need to live the Sermon on the Mount. You <laughs> know, it it pains me to see followers of Jesus more familiar with the talking points of CNN or Fox or some other news source than they are with the talking points of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And they're not just talking points. They're words and ways for a life lived in the abundance of God's kingdom. And so we memorize and internalize, we meditate on, and we become as we live into that. And then together, in this moment, I want us to take a step towards that by taking communion together. And so if you would, let's all stand together. And if you on your way in, you should have received a little communion cup. If you did not receive a communion cup on your way in or somehow missed it, would you just raise your hand and one of our host team will make sure that you get a cup. Just keep your hand raised. They'll be to you momentarily. The scripture says that before we take communion, it says before we take the bread and the cup, we're to examine ourselves. To solemnly and sincerely examine our hearts. And so I want us to take a moment of personal confession. Callie's just going to continue to play softly. And while she plays, if you would, just open your heart towards God. And maybe it's a it's an evaluation of maybe asking the question, how have I tried to prove myself this last week? If I live under the approval of God, how have I tried to Communicate to others, I am significant, and I need you to know it. Maybe it's protecting or trying to possess things. Maybe it's being aware of the things that possess you rather than you possessing them. Just take a moment. Allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. Confess those things to God. Repent. I want to encourage you to make confession an ongoing practice in your life. We also together want to confess. A con- Collective confessional prayer is going to come up here on the screen. We'll all say this and pray this together in just a moment. The reason we do this is because it is such a good reminder that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There is not one of us that needs more of Jesus in his grace than another. No matter what we've done or what we haven't done, we all are in desperate need of Jesus. And so by us praying this together, it's a reminder of that. If we can have that come onto the screen and then let's pray this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread peel off the top layer and give access to the bread. If you've not taken communion with us before, we practice what we call open communion, which means that if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you just said yes to Jesus a moment ago, we'd encourage you to participate with us as embracing Jesus in his work in our lives. Also means that it's not about membership to one particular church, but about belonging to the family of God. And so if you'd like to participate with us today, we encourage you to do so. If you're in a place where you would not like to, you certainly are welcome to participate in presence rather than in action. He said that he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would, let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We can take the juice together. And I'll pray for us all. Father, we thank you for your unbelievable love for your creation for us. So much so that you gave your Son. Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which you gave every part of you, Follow the will of the Father to experience what you experienced on the cross, the agony. And as a result of what you did, we can experience full life. So we say thank you. But God, we don't want to just remember and we don't want to just say thank you. We also want that reality of your life to fill us and move us that we wouldn't have love for you, but love would move us to action. And so God, we pray that we would not only be grateful for and receive the kingdom, but then we would give the kingdom. Help us to have eyes to see those who might be poor physically or otherwise. And may we be one to meet needs. Maybe we, maybe we, may we be ones to help others who are in desperate need in the name of Jesus, as a way of bringing the kingdom to show the world what it looks like when Jesus is king and rules and reigns. And our earth looks more like heaven. May it be so in us and may it be so through us. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. amen.